Look, I, I don't know if you write a diary now or if you ever wrote one as a youngster. I mean, I tried and failed pretty miserably. Uh, lack of self-discipline. I got bored. I mean, what do you put in a diary? Uh, you know, I can remember as a school kid writing it, and I wasn't very good at putting any great personal feelings in it, so there was only what you did. You know, you got up, had breakfast, went to school. Well, you did that. I mean, how many more times do you write it? And what you had for breakfast didn't change that much. Uh, so, um, you know, I kind of gave up after a bit. Uh, travel travel diaries can be the same as well. Don't you think that Luke faces something of the same challenge uh, here in the book of Acts? You know, Paul comes to a city, tells them about Jesus, gets beaten up, thrown in prison or both, uh, moves on. I mean, that's what it happens all the time. So how's he going to handle that and keep us interested? We're in chapter 17 and there's still another 10 to go. Whew. Well, watching one of the ways he does it is by not giving the same detail in every city he comes to. And uh, here we are, at the beginning of chapter 17, and Paul is uh, moving on with his companions, and they come to Thessalonica, where there's a Jewish synagogue, and verse 2, as was his custom. In case we hadn't picked it up by now, Luke's wanting us to realise this is the way that Paul tended to work. As was his custom, what? Uh, Paul went into the synagogue. That's where he tended to begin. He began with the people who, who had their scriptures which would point them to the Jesus he would tell them about. He began where there was likely to be some good starting points. And he not only went to the synagogue, but on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving he, uh, his wasn't a sort of one-way telling, you know, just shout it louder. There was engagement, real engagement with people. He, he opened their scriptures. He actually showed them things in their scriptures that made the points he was making. And he proclaimed, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. See, here's uh, his message. This Jesus is the Messiah, which you might think is a fairly short talk to give, and I've already uh, overrun it. Well, I have, and I will, I'm afraid, but it's only that short because Luke isn't repeating details. Uh, this Jesus is the Messiah. He didn't just get up and say, by the way, this Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, see you tomorrow. Uh, he was... Look, we know the sort of things he would say because Luke has already recorded a few chapters back when uh, Paul is in Pisidian Antioch and he's talking to the synagogue there. You get over 30 verses worth of what he was saying. So we know how he went about it. He's not going to repeat it here because he's already done it once. And uh, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming is the Messiah, and we can probably piece together what he's doing. Jesus is the heart of his message because it's what made the church different from the synagogue. And he's not coming to them and saying, oh, you've got it all wrong. No, no, no. The idea of a longing for the Messiah is a good, healthy longing. And Jesus is that king, he says. And you notice... When you look at verse 3, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer from their Scriptures. 
Not our New Testament. No, no, from our Old Testament. And we know the kind of places he would have gone to. Isaiah 53. Remember, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Uh, that's why Peter, you remember when Jesus said to Peter, who do people say that I am? You know, the easy starter question. And uh, Peter comes up with the, the different options, Elijah, John the Baptist. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. You've got it in one. Uh, and then Jesus goes on and says, uh, look, he's got to suffer and everything. And Peter says, no, no, you can't do that, Lord. He certainly couldn't go to a cross. That's a point of shame. That's a point of God's hostility against you. It's why many a Muslim will say that Jesus didn't die on a cross because how could a prophet die on a cross? We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But what was really going on was that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This death was a death for someone else. This suffering was for our rescue. And the Messiah had to suffer. Now that's not a reason why Jesus isn't Messiah. In fact, quite the opposite. And, you notice how verse 3 goes on? Had to suffer and had to rise from the dead. Good Friday was never going to be the end of the story. God was never going to stop it there. And the Scriptures would have told them that. He would have turned here. It was another favorite scripture. They turned to Psalm 16. You will not let your Holy One see decay. The grave couldn't keep him. And yet, the grave seems so powerful to us, doesn't it? It's why death was such a, a, a battleground, an, an issue. If you want meaning and purpose in life, it was in the first century. It is today. Here are two of the great minds of, uh, of the last century. Here's Bertrand Russell. There is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. There's no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. Now, we, we can easily shake our heads and say how awful and everything. Actually, uh, there's an honesty about some of those lines of trying to face what do I make of death? There will be an end for all of us. Here's another great uh, uh, thinker of the last century, Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist thinker. And he said this, the world seems ugly, bad and without hope. There, that's the cry of despair of an old man who will die in despair. But that's exactly what I resist. I know I shall die in hope. But that hope needs a foundation. Tragically for Sartre, there's no evidence he ever found a foundation. He died a month after writing this. 
And yet, here's the foundation for a real hope that can actually face up to the grave. The Messiah who will rise from the dead and take his people on that journey too. You see, to the people in the synagogue he was speaking with, uh, Messiah wouldn't be a novel concept in and of itself. Uh, They were looking for a Messiah who would come and rescue them from the the occupying powers, from the, the wickedness of the world, from the evil without, if you like. And what Paul's saying is that the reality is they need and they have in Jesus a Messiah who will rescue from the evil within. The sin you and I need forgiveness for. And the despair within. The death that's been defeated. The Messiah who is the King, the Lord. He, he's his Saviour, we keep saying, but actually he's only Saviour because he's Lord. And that was the big message in the book of Acts. You find again and again and again, this Jesus is Messiah. He's Lord. He's Messiah over sin. I wonder whether Paul would have told that story in the Gospels. You remember about the, the paralysed man lowered down through the roof? And when he gets to the floor in front of Jesus, Jesus doesn't say a word about his legs. He just says, your sins are forgiven. And there's horror all around. Only God can forgive sins. And he says, to show the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. How can speak as a Messiah King? Well, which is it easier? Take up your bed and walk or sins are forgiven? So take up your bed and walk. We can all see that. He takes up his bed and walk. Now, this is the king who can deliver on the promise to forgive sins. This is the king who has authority over death because he was raised from the dead. I mean, that's why tomorrow when... uh, (sighs) We celebrate Lewis Rolfe's life. It's called a a thanksgiving service for him. That's why there will be hope mingled in with grief tomorrow. That's why on the front page, I've got an early copy, um, one of the perks of the job. On the front page of the service order, uh, Margaret, his widow, has put this verse. I remember talking about it with her uh, the day after Lewis died. The verse from the Psalms, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Not tragic, precious. And why is it precious? Well, because the saint has come home. Because it's mission accomplished. The message. This Jesus is the Messiah. And Luke wants us to understand the response And there are, in both Thessalonica and later on in Berea, uh, there are these sort of twin track responses, if you like. Uh, Firstly, there's belief. Uh, Look at uh, verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Now, he'd been in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. 
I mean, if that was all the time he was there before the riot starts and he has to uh, shift out of there, he would have only been there for two, three weeks at the most. It's possible he he moved out of the synagogue into Jason's house because these God-fearing Gentiles were unlikely to be in in the synagogue. And when he writes to the Thessalonian church, he talks about how they turned from their idols, which is not the kind of language he would use to uh, uh, Jewish uh, people. Uh, So he may have been there a little longer, but, but not for long. And a church is planted. Church, he writes a strikingly glowing letter to. And you find, if you, you just look ahead to verse 12, when uh, he comes to Berea, well, look at verse 11. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Luke is telling us, isn't he, really, that Jews who studied the Scriptures believed. It's not a very PC way of speaking. But if you read the Old Testament properly, it'll lead you to Jesus. I'm not sure what... uh, Uh, A Jew in Thessalonica would have made it if they ever read the bit of Acts and to hear that these Berean ones were more noble than them, but we'll leave that battle for them. Uh, And uh, you see that again, many Gentile men, Gentile women as well, the, the gospel bears fruit. It's one of the messages of Acts all the way through. Jews, Gentile sympathizers, women, more about them in a moment, uh, they're all believing. Yes, that's good news. But actually there's another response as well. And that's hostility. That's hostility. Good news for the mob was the title I was given for uh, this talk. Actually, uh, if it had been more faithful to the text, it would have been bad news for the mob. Um, The mob do not like this news. Well, I'm not sure whether the mob even heard it because they get rented. It's rent-a-mob in Thessalonica, isn't it? Uh, Verse 5, other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they didn't find them, uh, they were obviously out shopping or something, uh, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who've caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Uh, You see, I don't know how much the mob knew about what Paul had said at all. They'd certainly been given a warped version But actually, built into all of this is the reminder that we do have to face the bad news of the gospel if we're going to hear the good news of the gospel. And at heart, the bad news of the gospel is this, that the Messiah position is no longer vacant. That the Lord of life position has been taken. That the King of your life position is filled, and not by us. 
And that makes it a threat to religious leaders who can't control anymore and to secular leaders as well. And who knows what damage was going to be caused. These prominent women who are uh, converted, uh, you kind of wonder how much patronage they had uh, there and how much there was a fear that, good heavens, would they switch all their uh, jobs and employment to other believers and would that mean that some people would lose it? We'd better make sure uh, we protest about this. So a demo's held. And some of the things they're told have got grains of truth in them. They've caused trouble all over the world. It's a bit of an exaggeration. Paul hadn't got that far yet. But his message is upsetting wherever he goes. There's a a riot in Philippi in the chapter before. The gospel can cause civic unrest. And they're defying Caesar's decree saying there's another king. Well, yes, but not that kind of king. But you can see how you can easily twist that into political treason. You can see why the church is always a target for totalitarian regimes, whether they're from the left or from the right. They're one of the groups you've got to suppress quickly if you want control. One of the reasons why Christians are the most persecuted group in the world, according to the latest surveys. And human hearts aren't all like the Bereans uh, who open the scriptures to study them. No, no, this group in Thessalonica, uh, uh, they bring a rent and dr- rent a mob and drive him out. Uh, and then, verse 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowd, stirring them up. And the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. And those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. There's a riot, he escapes, he goes to Athens and a sovereign God is going to bring the gospel to the heart of Greek civilization. So what's the picture Luke leaves us with? A fruit-bearing gospel and a hostility-creating gospel all at the same time. And he wants our expectations to take both of those on board. Um, The gospel has a Lord that will unsettle. Unsettle establishments. Unsettle established patterns of, of living. And you sometimes wonder whether we've tamed the gospel so much that that we don't need some of its warnings, some of its encouragements to people to be uh, actually uh, uh, authority-honouring citizens, good citizens. Uh, Why should it have to be reining them in if it hadn't given them such freedom? You wonder if sometimes we're so keen on talking about a saviour, we've lost the edge of talking about a messiah and a king. But I also wonder if we haven't lost some of our expectations of the gospel to bear fruit. Wherever you plant it, in the synagogue, out with the Gentile, men, women, high class, low class, that's the gospel that as he writes his travelogue, as he goes from city to city, bears fruit and creates hostility.
Well, let's keep our expectations there. Let me pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for a a gospel that brings such life and such hope where there is none. And please guard our hearts and give us that boldness that means we continue to speak even when there's hostility. For your name's sake. Amen.